This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. If you have your Bibles with you, please open to the book of Colossians chapter 4. Book of Colossians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, you can go ahead and shoot your hand up. We have people in the back who would be happy to get a Bible to you. Uh, we will make sure that everyone has a copy of the Bible in front of them because we believe that these words are the very words of God. And so we want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to read God's very words for themselves. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4 today as we finish up our series that we've been in for several months now in this short letter. And it is going to be sad to move on because God has met us in rich ways. Uh, and yet before we move on, I think God has one more important thing to say to us in this letter. So Colossians chapter, chapter 4. As you turn there, I recently heard a true story about a really extraordinary rescue. This woman named Jamie Munson was out on a shopping trip with her husband in Littleton, Colorado. And they were on their way back to their home when all of a sudden they saw a minivan in front of them that started to go very, very slow. And then suddenly it swerved onto the shoulder and then swerved again into oncoming traffic going the other way. They were alarmed as they kind of went past this car to see that the person who was driving that car had fallen asleep at the wheel. Jamie's husband immediately began to honk his horns and flash his lights, trying to wake this person up, but to no avail. And so without saying anything, Jamie then opens the door to her car, jumps out of the door, begins to run next to this car, which again had started to go very slowly, but is coming into oncoming traffic. She starts to run next to this door, banging on the driver's side door to try to wake this person up. But again, he stayed fast asleep. And so she opened the door to that car, slammed on the emergency brake, it slowed, and then she rammed it into park, and the car came to a stop just as oncoming traffic started to rush past them. The police eventually came and dealt with the situation and told Jamie that the person who was at the wheel was a diabetic and had gone into insulin shock. And her actions had saved his life. Jamie was an ordinary person going through a very ordinary day and yet through her an extraordinary rescue happened. This morning in our passage we're going to see God talk about some ordinary people doing some ordinary things, and through them, working an extraordinary rescue. Colossians chapter 1 was all about how Jesus is Lord. There is none like him. Colossians chapter 2 was all about how Jesus brings liberty. There is freedom in him. Colossians chapter 3 is all about how Jesus shapes our life. There is guidance from him. And Colossians chapter 4 is all about how Jesus calls us to be his laborers. There is purpose in him. Let's read together in God's word, starting in verse 2, and I'll read down through the end of the chapter. These are the words of God to us through his servant Paul. God says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on which I am in prison, 
that I might speak it clearly, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to answer, how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision, among whom my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nymphia and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read amongst you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you receive from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. I want to encourage you to pray. Uh, to God and ask him to speak to you today through preaching of his words. Just have a quiet moment of prayer between you and him. And now would you please pray for me that I be helped by the Holy Spirit to speak in a way that is clear and faithful to God's word and beneficial to you. God, we pray you would come, and through the Holy Spirit, which inspired these words, would you now illuminate them to our hearts. And by the power of your Spirit, may a far better sermon be heard than the one I'm actually going to preach. I pray for the good of your people and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as we come to the close of this letter, we see some final instructions that Paul has for the people in Colossae about how they are to work and be around outsiders, those who are outside the Christian faith. He calls them to pray for themselves and for him that they be given opportunities to declare the word, to declare what he says is the mystery of Christ. We've seen throughout this letter that the mystery of Christ is that Jesus came and lived the life that we never could. He did this so he could then die the death that we deserve on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins, so that he could then rise to new life, proving that he is God and there's more saving power in him than there is sin in us. And for anyone who puts their faith in Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins and cleansed of them and welcomed by God into his very family. This is the mystery of Christ, what is also known as the gospel. 
the good news of Jesus. And what we see here is Paul's saying, hey, we need to think about declaring this to others. And so this closing section here is all about sharing our faith. And I think when we come to the topic of sharing our faith, I think that's something that generally as Christians, we agree that's a good thing to do. But how many of us actually consistently do that on a regular basis? I think our actions might say we think it's a good thing to do just for someone else to do, not for us. But friends, here's what we need to understand. God is on a rescue mission. God's on a rescue mission. He wants to rescue men, women, and children from the judgment that we all deserve for our sins through people coming to put their faith in Jesus Christ who died for their sins. And God wants to accomplish this rescue mission not through having his praise declared by the stars that he could do it that way. He wants to accomplish this rescue mission not by opening the heavens and himself speaking to people, although he could do it that way, But God wants to reach people through people. In other words, here's the big idea that I think God wants us to meditate on from this text this morning. God loves to do his extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. God loves to do his extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people, not not special people, not the spiritually elite people. No, through ordinary people. Not doing wild, crazy things that none of us could imagine. No, ordinary people doing very ordinary things faithfully. I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, The Ordinary Person's Guide to Sharing Christ. The Ordinary Person's Guide to Sharing Christ. And so if you identify as an ordinary person, this message is for you. And as we go through this, I do, I do just want to say this up front. As we talk about sharing Christ, I'm very aware that there are people listening to this either now here in this room or online or maybe a later date uh, who do not yet believe in Jesus. And it can be slightly awkward to talk about sharing Christ with those who don't know Christ and to know that we're kind of talking about you and how we want to share Christ with you. Uh, and so I just want to put you at ease a little bit and say, first of all, thank you for listening to this. Thank you for being here. So grateful that you would spend your time with us. And my hope and prayer for you this morning is that you would hear a little bit about God's heart for you. You wouldn't feel like some kind of project that people are trying to figure out how to engage. No, you'd feel the love of the Almighty God who cares about you so much that he wants to send people into your life to tell you about him. And so I pray you would hear his heart for you this morning. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I pray that we would see really four things, four very ordinary things that God wants us to give ourselves to faithfully in order to do his extraordinary work through us. He wants us to be faithful in prayer, faithful in character, faithful in speech, and faithful in friendships. How does God do his extraordinary work? He does it through ordinary people being faithful in prayer, faithful in character, faithful in speech, and faithful in friendship. Let's look at first, faithful in prayer. Verse 2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer. So he's saying pray regularly, which is a good thing to do in general, but here's what we are to be praying regularly about according to Colossians chapter 4. Paul goes on in verse 3 to say, pray also for us, meaning what you're praying for yourself, pray the same thing also for us. Pray for what? That a door may be opened for the word. Declare the mystery of Christ. The prayer that's being talked about here is praying that God would give us opportunities, open doors to share the good news of Jesus. 
If we want to be used by God, then we need to pray for God to work through us. We need to pray persistently. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. I think often we can treat prayer as an instant fix. We pray and expect things to happen immediately. And then when they don't, we get discouraged. But this is saying pray steadfastly. It's another way to say pray persistently. And what does that assume? That assumes that what you're praying for is not happening immediately. You don't need to pray persistently if things are happening immediately. You need to pray persistently because things are not going to happen immediately. We need to be persistent because God loves to work through prayers that are prayed over a long haul. I have a friend who was praying for his mother to come to know Christ for over 40 years. He became a Christian in his mid-20s, and he shared with her about Jesus for over 40 years, and she just kept saying, no, 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 until she was 80. But he never stopped praying, because he knew that as soon as he stopped praying, that meant he had stopped believing that God could be at work. See, prayer is what we do when we know there's nothing that we can do by ourselves. Prayer is our acknowledgement that there's a God and we're not Him. And so persistent prayer is an expression of continued faith that God is still at work. And so Christ Church, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying because the minute we stop praying, we are giving up on God and what he can do. And God's not giving us the authority to close the chapter on anyone's life when he's still writing their story. And so we need to continue to pray because God is still powerful to save. We need to pray persistently. We need to pray dependently. I find it so encouraging that, prayer at, that Paul asked for prayer that he be able to speak clearly. I mean, think about, think about who Paul is. This is the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. Outside of Jesus, there is no one who's been more influential on Christianity than the Apostle Paul. And yet he didn't feel like, I've got this. He didn't feel like, I'm the man. I don't need any help from anyone. No, he was like, I need you to pray for me because I have no power in and of myself. Paul felt a need for God. And I'm like, man, if Paul felt a need for God, how much more so should we feel a need for God? Often I think we can shrink back from sharing about Jesus because we just feel like we're not sure if we're going to know what to say. We feel inadequate, and so we don't share. But friends, I think this call for prayer is meant to reframe that in our minds. If we're feeling inadequate, that shouldn't be a, a barrier to us sharing about Christ. No, that should create a dependency in us that we need Christ. The next time you go to share your faith and you're scared that you're not going to know what to say, don't let that fear clam you up. Let that fear turn your heart to God and say, Lord, I need you. I need your help. Let that emotion of fear not work against you, but to start to work for you. What you're feeling in that moment is that you're inadequate, and the truth is you are. But the good news is that God can work through you. And so pray and ask him to do that. Let your sense of inadequacy turn you to him in dependency. We need to pray persistently, dependently, and we need to pray, as it says in verse uh, 2, watchfully. 
We are to be watchful in prayer. What does that mean? Well, it means that when we pray, that should create an expectation in us that God is going to bring opportunities to us. If we are praying for open doors, in other words, we then need to be watchful for the doors that God is going to open. Friends, prayer should never be an excuse for us to be passive and spiritually negligent. No, prayer should create an expectation. We should be, we should be standing on our tiptoes. I'm praying, God, for you to move. Okay, give me eyes now to see how you're moving. Prayer should create an expectation that we're going to need to take some steps because God wants to work through us. One time I was reading the Bible in uh, the park, Dick of the Square, right across the street, and someone just walked by me and said, uh, kind of disgustedly, I hate that book. Um, and so, but I, I was trying to be watchful in prayer. And so I was like, Lord, is this, is this actually an opportunity to talk about you? It certainly felt like more like an obstacle. <laughs> um, like, I'm just sitting here minding my day, man, you know, and you got a comment on online reading? Okay, like whatever makes you happy, you know? And so it was very tempting just to be like, all right, let them go. But I wanted to be praying watchfully. And so instead of just letting them go, I said, just felt prompted by the Spirit to ask them, well, why, do you, why do you feel that way? Can you tell me why you feel that way? And that sincere question led to an honest conversation where I was able to hear about some hurts they'd been through. And from that was then able to share Christ with them. You see, when we are watchful in prayer, obstacles can become opportunities. Because we start to believe that God is at work in these opening doors. We need to pray persistently. We need to pray dependently. We need to pray watchfully. And then we need to pray, as it says, thankfully. It says, pray with thanksgiving. Here's why I think Paul encourages us to pray with thanksgiving. Because if we're only praying for what we want God to do, then we're only focusing on what hasn't happened yet. We're only praying for future things, which, which we should pray for. But if we're only praying for what hasn't happened yet, I think we'll be consistently battling discouragement. Because our focus will be on what hasn't yet come to pass. And so what we need to do is we need to pray for what we want to see happen with thanksgiving in our hearts for what has already happened. What builds our faith that God will work is prayers of thanksgiving for how God has been at work. And so if you want your heart stirred for how God can work through you, then pray prayers of thanksgiving. God, thank you for how you've saved me. Thank you that I was walking away from you, and yet you came and you rescued me by your grace. Thank you for how I've seen you at work in these people's lives. Thank you for how I've seen you work in this situation. Like, we shouldn't just pray for what we want to see God do. We need to pray with hearts of thanksgiving for what God has done. When we pray that way, that will stir our hearts for what God can continue to do. And so we need to pray faithfully. God loves to work through ordinary people, taking the ordinary step of just being faithful in prayer. To pray persistently, dependently, watchfully, and thankfully. We're to be faithful in prayer. Second, we're to be faithful in character. Verse 5 tells us to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Walking is a common metaphor in the Bible, we saw already in chapter 2, for how, how just we're to live our lives, the way we conduct ourselves. And what does it mean then to walk in wisdom? Well, Proverbs 4.11 tells us, I taught you the way of wisdom. I led you in the paths of uprightness. Walking the ways of wisdom is walking in the path of uprightness, which is another way that the Bible talks about living with obedience to God. That's, what, that's what's upright. That's what's right. 
It's right according to what God says. And so walking in wisdom means living with godly character. Theologian and commentator F.F. Bruce, I think, really captured what's going on here when he wrote in his commentary, the reputation of the gospel is bound up with behavior of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. People who do not read the Bible for themselves or listen to the preaching of the Word of God can see the lives of those that do and will form their judgment accordingly. I was recently talking with someone who lives in a country where it's illegal to share your faith, and yet they're seeing many people come to faith in Jesus. And so I asked uh, her, how's that happening? Walk me through. What is your guys' strategy uh, for sharing about Christ when, like, it's illegal for you to share about Christ? And, and she said, well, we're just really intentional, build relationships with pe- people who don't believe in Jesus. And as they spend time with us, they see a difference in us, and they ask us questions about it. And so they ask why we don't speak with the same vulgarity. They ask why we don't talk and gossip about one another. They ask why we serve others and put their needs first. They ask why we don't listen to all the things they listen to. They ask why we don't watch all things they're watching. They ask why are we filled with joy and peace, no matter what, even when we're going through hard things. Right? They ask us, why are you different? And that then gives us an open door to share about how Jesus makes a difference. And I think that's just a great illustration of what Paul is talking about here. Our godly character, walking with wisdom, is meant to open doors for us to share about the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. He says, making the best use of the time, which I think can mean one of two things. On the one hand, I think it can mean that our time is short, and so like, don't waste time living in sin. Use your time to live for God. So the making the best use of the time, I think, means live with Godly character now because it matters now. But I also think it means making the best use of the time, discerning that there are different moments, different times, if you will, where different parts of Christian character will connect with the culture in even more impactful ways. And so I think right now we have a tremendous opportunity in our culture, in this particular moment, to have our godly character connect in a very powerful way. The reality is we are living in a time where more and more our culture is going, growing increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. Like in our country for many years, basic moral norms used to be in line with biblical ethics. Those things kind of meshed up together. But now our culture has largely redefined what is right and wrong and doesn't even think it's okay to talk in categories of right and wrong. And this puts Christianity on the outside and we're no longer in step with mainstream culture. And in large part, it seems that Christians are responding to this in, in one of two ways. One, they get combative or two, they compromise. Like, there can be this temptation to get combative. Like, what's our country coming to? Like, I'm going to fight for our rights, you know? It's us versus the culture. Or there's a temptation to compromise. When we begin to change or avoid the things scriptures say that clearly challenge things, they become cultural norms. It's, it's us not against culture. It's us compromised by culture. But friends, when we get either combative or we compromise, we are missing out on the opportunity that Jesus has given us to be different. Jesus told us not to be combative or to compromise when people come against us. Well, what did he tell us to do? He, here's how our character is meant to shine through. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. This is the character that we should have. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, how we are to meet a hostile culture when we're called bigots, we're called out of step, 
we're called, you know, all the things that we can get called, all the stereotypes that can get put on us. How we're to meet a hostile culture is with the character of love. Is with the character of love. Love that refuses to compromise because we believe God's word is true. And so let's be clear, you aren't loving anyone if you're lying to them about what God says. And so love means an unwillingness to compromise, but also means a refusing to be combative. Because we believe that anger and outrage accomplish nothing. But as God tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, it is kindness that leads to repentance. And so I think we have a tremendous opportunity in this time to, to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of our time by, by showing a love that's unyielding on truth and unwavering in tenderheartedness. I love the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield in her book, uh, Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria Butterfield was a professor of liberal studies at Syracuse University and the leader in the early uh, LGBTQ movement back in the early 90s. And she wrote this article back in the early 90s, uh, really attacking Christianity and their bigotry towards homosexuals. And she said that she got two responses. She got all this mail back, and there was really two categories that everyone could fall in. So she made two piles. Those who supported her, like, yeah, get them, that's great. And, and then those who were for the haters, right? And every letter she got could fit into one of those two piles until she got a letter from a pastor named Ken. She says, Ken's letter did not agree with her on her stance about sexuality, but gave actually a very well-reasoned biblical response to God's purpose for sex according to Scripture. And so she couldn't put in the support pile. But it was so kind and gracious and compassionate and generous that she didn't feel right putting in the hater pile either. And in the letter, Ken actually invited her to coffee, and so out of curiosity, she got together with him, expecting that, you know, now is when things are finally going to get combative, but it didn't go that way. In fact, that one coffee led to months of coffee, which led to her coming into Ken's home and becoming friends with his wife and his kids and really becoming, in some ways, a member of their family. They developed this deep friendship for over 10 years where eventually she gave her life to Christ. Ken was walking in wisdom towards an outsider. His godly character opened up a door for his gospel witness. And that's what God wants for us. God loves to do his extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. So, Christ Church, be faithful in your character. Love people with an unyielding stance on the truth of God's word because you're not loving anyone if you're lying to them. And love people with an unwavering tenderheartedness that God has shown us in Christ. Third, we are to be faithful in speech. It's not enough to only show someone godly character. This passage is making clear to us that we have to verbally share the gospel. Paul asked for prayer that he would declare the gospel clearly, which means what? He's going to have to speak it out loud. And that's not just a prayer for him, but in verse 6 he says, let your speech, let what you're saying, he says, always be seasoned with salt. Now, now in our modern times, we hear the word salty speech, and that means that someone's being kind of cranky, someone mean, someone, un, you know, unkind. Uh, that's actually the exact opposite of what salty speech meant back in ancient Near East culture. Uh, David Garland helps us understand the cultural setting of this when he says season with salt was, was, a re, uh, was to refer to witty, amusing, clever, humorous speech. Here's what's going on. Godliness is not to be equated with stodginess. 
flat formulas or lifeless platitudes do not capture the gospel's excitement. Or I love, as my friend Pastor Craig Cabanis said, we should share the good news like it's good news. That that's what it means to be salty in our speech. It means that we should share the good news like it is good news. Having salty speech means that we should be excited about what we are talking about. And so that implies that we are what? That we are actually talking. We need to be very clear. It's not enough to only try to just be a godly person as an example without verbally using our words to share about Christ. It's not enough. Author Donald Whitney tells a story about this man who became a Christian and he felt this you know, compelling need to share the gospel with his coworkers. So he goes to one of his coworkers they'd worked with for over 10 years. He says, hey, I just want to tell you what God's done in my life. And he shares the gospel with him. And his coworker says, that's great. I've been praying for you to know Christ since I met you. And the guy looks at him confusingly and says, you're actually the reason why I didn't come to Christ for so many years. The Christian's like, how could that be? Like, I tried to be kind to you. I tried to show God's character to you. He's like, yeah, that's exactly it. You were so nice and so kind and so at peace and so joyful. You were just such a great person that I thought the secret to life was just learning to be more like you. Friends, if we don't use our words, then people might think you're great, but no one got to heaven ever thinking that you were great. What they need is to know that there's a Savior who's great. What they need to know is not just that you're different, but that Jesus is the one who makes a difference. And the only way they're going to know that is by you sharing about Christ. We need to, yes, live godly lives, but that never should be an excuse to close our lips. Our godly lives should then be a platform for us to be able to use our lips to share the good news of Christ. And what this passage is saying to us, as it tells us to, to have salty speech, is that we should be talking about things in a way that we're excited about what we're talking about. So you know what that tells me? That sharing about Christ does not first start with a commitment to share about Christ. Sharing about Christ first starts with our own affections for Christ. Here's what this passage is telling us. That if we want to have salty speech, we want to be excited about Jesus and share about Jesus excitedly, that what we share with our lips first needs to start with our own hearts. I think it is very easy to slip into a Christianity that believes all true things about Jesus, but over time is not very moved by what we believe. We know about Christ, but we get used to not delighting in Christ. And so Jesus becomes a knowledge that we have, not a relationship that we enjoy. What God wants to do is he, he wants us to recognize our need that as we, if we want to share out Jesus more, that starts with not just greater efforts. I'm going to really try hard to do it today. No, it starts with this. God, I need you to have more of my heart. God, I need you. I need your spirit to do what Ephesians chapter 3 talks about, to strengthen me more and more, to know the love of Christ was the width and length, and depth of his love, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I don't want just to be a knowledge, Lord God. I need your Holy Spirit to make it something that comes alive to my heart so that I might be filled with all the fullness of God. And friends, when you're filled with the fullness of God, of his great love for you in Jesus, which has been poured into you and made alive to you through the presence of the Spirit, 
That's how you have a salty speech. God has wired us to be people who share about what we care about. And so we want to share more about Christ. That starts with us learning more and more how to care about Christ. Which isn't about us trying to be better Christians. No, it's about us recognizing our need for the Spirit of God to come more and more into our lives and make the love of God in Christ come alive to our hearts. And as we're filled with God's love for us, that's what gives us love for people. And for people, notice, as individual people. He says in verse 4 that, that I, I want to know how to speak. And then he goes down in verse 6 and says that you need to know how to answer each person. Notice we're to answer each person, meaning what? Each person might need a different answer. The truths of God's word are the same. But not each person needs to hear the exact same thing. So how we share the gospel with someone who is feeling a profound sense of loneliness should be different than how we share the gospel with someone who's feeling a lot of self-righteousness. And so being faithful to speak begins with first being faithful to listen, to draw out people's hearts so we might know how to carefully apply the truth of God's word to the place where they're hurting the most. Francis Schaeffer, who is arguably one of the most effective people in the last 100 years about sharing about Christ. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that. He was asked one time, if you only had one hour to share about Jesus, what would you say? This was his answer. He said, if I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. Friends, we want to share with people. We need to learn how to listen to people so we might know how God wants us to share with people. God loves to do his extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. So Christ Church, be faithful in speech. Point number four, be faithful in friendship. Faithful in friendship. And Verses 7 through 18, Paul gives a long list of names of all kinds of different people. Some of these people, we know their backstories. Some of these people, we do not. Onesimus is one of the people that we know his backstory. He was a servant who stole from his master, and he ran away. So he was a criminal and a fugitive. But in his running away, God directed him to run into Paul. And Paul shared the gospel with him. And this former criminal became one of Paul's most trusted helpers. Paul goes on to mention the name Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas. We read in Acts chapter 15 that Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas on the mission field. Persecution, persecution came, and Mark said, this is too hard, and he peaced out. And so when the next mission trip came along, Barnabas is like, hey, let's give Mark another shot. And Paul's like, fool me once. You know, he's like, no, it's not going to happen, right? He's, he's not going to give him another shot. And so actually, Paul and Barnabas split over that. They disagree about how to deal with Mark. And yet here, Mark has been restored. And so, so much restored that Paul's like, hey, you heard about his failure. This way he says, welcome him as I've instructed you. You heard about his failure, but I'm telling you to welcome him. Because this man, this man is no longer marked by his failure. But man has been restored to Christ. So you've got this former criminal. You've got this former failure. Then you've got some... Gentiles, some non-Jews, we notice by their names, Tychicus, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. 
And then you've got some Jewish people that Paul says part of the circumcision party, so people who, who lived under Jewish laws. So that was Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. Now here's what we need to understand about those lists. In the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles, so Jews and non-Jews, were not friends. Right? There was actually deep racial hatred between those people groups. And yet we see that people from both those groups are here working together with Paul. So this, this, there's so many things in this list going on, but here's really the theme. Here's really what this list is telling us. The gospel makes some extraordinary friends. The gospel makes some extraordinary friends. The gospel brings together people who would otherwise never have any reason to be together. And yet in their differences from one another, there's a unity that they share in Christ. And from that unity, there's strong ministry that can be done. What we're seeing in these final verses is that Paul was not a one-man show. He actually closes almost, excuse me, all his letters by talking about his fellow workers. Paul never did ministry alone. And this is really the pattern throughout Scripture. Moses gets called by God, and then Moses gets given Aaron, and then gets told to make the royal priesthood. You have David, who then is given his mighty men. You have Jesus who then is his 12 disciples. And then he sends them out, what? Not by themselves, but two by two. The biblical pattern is that God shows us again and again that what he can do through us together is so much greater than what he can do through any one of us individually. And look at how Paul describes the various roles that these friends have. Tychicus, in verse 8, is described as an encourager. Onesimus is said to have been one of them, meaning he was a native who could better help contextualize the message to these people. You have Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, and Paul says, they've been a comfort to me. He talks about Epaphras, who was unceasing in his prayers. He talks about Luke and Demas, who are dearly loved by Paul, like they're just his, they're just his buddies. What we see is that all these different people have all kinds of different strengths, but as they come together and they're at different strengths... It was through them coming together that God did extraordinary things. And so the model that Paul is holding out to us here is not to settle for a small American dream. We just think about ourselves and what we can see happen through us. What this is holding out to us is to live for a God-sized dream that can't be accomplished just by us, but it's going to require us to partner together with other people. It's going to require us to build deep and lasting friendships so that together we can share about Christ. Here's the question that I think this text should be provoking in our hearts right now. Who's your crew? Like, who are your people? Who are the people that you are living on mission with Jesus trying to reach other people together? Who are those people for you? If they're not people that readily come to your name in your mind, I just want to encourage you, you're in a great place. We're a church that loves to build relationships. Like, get involved in one of our community groups. Get involved in one of our men's and Bible studies, one of our women's Bible studies. All that information's on our website or out in the lobby. Get involved in that stuff. Build those friendships. Because what God can do through an us is so much greater than what God can do just through you. As we come to a close... Paul ends this letter by saying, remember my chains. And then he says, and grace be with you. When he says, remember my chains, he's reminding them that he is writing this in prison. 
but it's not to get their pity. Most commentators actually agree Paul is giving them some inspiration, which is why he says, grace be with you. You see, the grace of Christ, all who Jesus is for us, all that he had been telling the Colossians about him, Christ truly is enough. And so Paul is saying, I'm sitting here in chains, but I still got grace. And I want you to know this grace, because when Christ is enough, then even when you're in prison, you are still living free. That's a powerful way to live. It's a powerful thing to live in the grace of Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that the grace of Christ that he was enjoying in that prison cell was too much for him to keep to himself. It was too good for him to hold on to it himself. And so he wanted to, to give his life. And he was calling the Colossians to give their lives. And through him, God is calling us to give our lives to being God's laborers and to using our lives to share about Christ taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. And friends, I hope that, like, as we get to the end here, you see that, like, any of us can get in on this. Like, what are we describing here that's, like, extraordinary? Nothing. Any of us can get into this. Any of us can pray. Any of us can pray. Any of us can pursue godly character. Like, we should be doing that anyways. You know, any of us can learn to speak about what we care about. Like, you do that already just with, like, the TV shows you watch and the restaurants you enjoy. Just learn how to apply that to Christ. Any of us can be enjoying friendships where we're encouraging one another and praying for each other and praying with each other to reach other people about Jesus. Like, this is all very basic, ordinary stuff. But God loves to do his extraordinary work through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. And friends, this is why eight years ago, 29 people from three different states came together to start this church. We were all happy where we were. But Philadelphia has 1.6 million people in it. And less than 3% of them are followers of Jesus. We believe that God has a heart for this city. That there are many lost men and women and children here that God wants to rescue. And so this church is here to be a place where people can put down some roots and grow in their relationship with Jesus because we can't share what we ourselves don't have. And so we mature as disciples in Christ so that we can then be empowered to go out and make disciples of Christ. This church is here because we believe that God does extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people doing very ordinary things. And so Christ Church, as we hear this exhortation from Scripture together, let's be reminded that God is on a mission in this city. There are people that God wants to reach, and he has sent you to your job. He has sent you to your workplaces. He has sent you to your schools, to all the places that you are. You don't just happen to be there. You've been sent there by Jesus because God wants to reach people through people. He wants to reach them through you. And you don't have to be an extraordinary person to do that. You just have to be willing to admit you're an ordinary person who needs the extraordinary power of God. And so Christ Church, let's pursue delighting in Christ. Let's pursue a rich and vibrant life in Him so that we might then be used by Him, ordinary people that we are, to be part of His extraordinary work to reach people with the good news of Jesus. Let's bow heads in prayer.